and welcome to episode 10 of Zico Mode. This episode is about video games. Yeah, as Comrade Brittany says, you're either a player or you're getting played. No, no, she did not say this. Did she not? No. Okay, well, well, someone said that. Um, Before we do an episode on video games, we've got two excellent people joining us. Mm -hmm. First, Marianne Deschkevita, talking about Left Left Up and all kinds of cool things. She's very generous and recorded a segment for us. And who do we have after that? We have Holly Thurman. uh, Mm. Premier games critic. (laughs) Games critic, games journalist. Mm. Absolute comrade. And that's a much big, long interview with her. Much big, long. (laughs) (laughs) Much big, long. Yeah, it's epic. Yeah, it's it's good. Totally epic. Yeah, right. Okay, so it's all that to look forward to. So enjoy. Enjoy. And I'm the creator of Left Left Up, a weekly bite-sized show on the intersection of video games and politics that is mostly posted on Twitter, but also has a YouTube archive. From late 2016, I had a blog on Medium that I was lucky enough to have noticed. So I was able to write for some incredible publications like GamesIndustry.biz, Kotaku, Guardian, and Vice. But maybe it's, well, maybe it's my insecurities over my own writing abilities or the fact that I rely on body language too much, but I did want to be able to express myself in a video form. So at the beginning, I was collaborating with a media organization called Navarre Media, but I've sort of learned what I needed to do by myself and uh, started just making it all all in-house you know in my back garden with all filmed with like 11 year old camcorder etc but essentially I just realized that there's just not enough content that covers it from that really unapologetically radical uh, left-wing perspective that came with a lot of resistance, of course, not only from the far right, who have been haranguing me for quite a while, but also uh, sometimes from the liberal left as well, just because I really am challenging every uh, games creator to really think of their modes of production and how their games are made, and not to assign political value to them when sometimes it just doesn't exist. And the reason why I think gaming lacks that type of Marxist analysis is because, differently from most other artistic mediums, video games became a huge uh, cultural realm, uh, really from following the path of Silicon Valley rather than the usual artistic mediums that have a much, much longer history. So what we saw in the games industry was a repeating of many of the mistakes that have already been made by the tech sector, whether it's the um, fetishization of the of the artistic genius or just uh, feeling lucky that you even work in this industry and the kind of like go get it attitude. And I suppose you'll move fast and break things that that line can also sometimes really describe how uh, the games industry has been in the past 50 years. And so often workers themselves would just not see themselves as that exactly uh, just cogs in the machine that essentially creates profits for other people. Unfortunately, people creating games a lot of the time, though it is a multi-billion dollar industry, actually bigger than music and film combined now. Game makers didn't necessarily see themselves as subjects in the class composition that the rest of the world lives in. Uh, but it is beginning to change. Uh, what's been really exciting to witness in the past couple of years was the birth of unionization within the games industry. What started as a hashtag uh, two years ago, that is hashtag Game Workers Unite, now has blossomed to chapters in over 30 countries across five continents with six legal trade unions. Uh, with U- GWUK actually trailblazing, being the first one that formed legally, as well as right now actually recruiting a paid organizer. So I've been incredibly lucky to be close to this action and just witnessing the inspiring work that the games industry workers are brave enough to do right now. To see the games industry finally really growing that class consciousness and understanding its place in overall reproduction of capitalism, something that has definitely been lacking uh, in this in this milieu. And although the demographics of players are actually quite uh, diverse, the people making them still remain 
a lot of the time a boys club, though uh, that is definitely changing. In that political vacuum, sadly, I feel like the progressive left hasn't really made its mark. And so we have seen, sadly, a rise of organized fascism in this industry too, something that I try and combat with my work outside of content creation. Um, and yeah, just really attempting to push for ambition in this incredible cultural space and really think how gaming, which is something that is so big right now, that so many young people, apolitical people, are engaging themselves with how can we turn around this space from being really bending towards hyper-capitalist tendencies and think of a space that could perhaps really offer that reimagining of what autonomy or utopia could be. Especially now during uh, the global COVID-19 crisis, we see so many people trying to shield themselves from it with gaming. And so this is a, a golden opportunity to really think about how these products come to our desktop computers, to think about the modes of production involved in the, the creation of games, for game makers to also really negotiate their place as history makers potentially in this incredible moment that we live in so yeah i'd say game perhaps check who are the people making your game celebrate them but not only the game artists the games devs people that we should be embracing and celebrating people that are for instance testing the games people that are um, you know, cleaning the offices of games studios, etc. The security guards there, let alone the people that are creating the hardware on which we are enjoying our video games. A lot of the time that is done under really brutal conditions. So although gaming is used as an escape for many of us, we must also at all times really scrutinize how our cultural objects are made and to attempt to make it all better. I'm sure I'm trying. Thank you so much. Hello comrades and welcome to episode 8 of Sicko Mode. I am Siang. It's a me, Mario. <laughs> Hi Mario. Hi. Um, so today we're joined by Mario and our other extra special guest, um, Holly. Holly, introduce yourself if you would like to. Hello, um, <laughs> my name is Holly. <laughs> I am an Animal Crossing anthropologist, yeah. uh, cultural Marxist, yeah. here to um, talk about the communist horizons of the, the video game industry. Exactly, because it's our special video games episode. Yeah. And we're, but we're, we're going to think more particularly about Animal Crossing since it's the game that everyone's playing. It's where all the socialists are at right now. And Some you're awesome. you're an expert in it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So. Well, I wouldn't call myself an expert, but I have played it. Yeah. Have well, played it. How many hours a week <laughs> do you think you play it? Um, I reckon I probably do like an hour or two a day. But I've got friends that have done like 150 hours in total where i've only done like 40 so oh nice but you're building up you're building up to the pro leagues yeah 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 Yeah, you visited uh sorry you visited my friend sam's island which is very nice and she's also like i've played 200 hours (laughs) oh wow yeah she said she said to me that she's hidden how many hours she's done because it usually displays it on your on your profile what you so in your settings you can actually hide it from the world yeah yeah, yeah. that's clever that's very clever but then i guess yeah. as soon as someone hides it then you know that they're they're really putting the hours in <laughs> yeah so it's a giveaway yeah. by an absence mm. so yeah. animal crossing so i'm someone that's never played animal crossing whatsoever because i'm not a gamer i will never be a gamer no one can prove <laughs> that i have games um okay but so imagine that it's my first day on Animal Crossing. What happens? How do I get kind of interpolated the animals into the, to cross. the Animal Crossing world system? So this has changed quite a lot between Animal Crossing games, um, which I'm not an expert on the canon because I, I never had a GameCube, so I didn't play the first one. GameCube? Um, I forgot about GameCube. Yeah, it was on the, ga- it was on the GameCube to what? begin with. Um, Nintendo's had very I, weird I used to play consoles. The... Yeah. Um, and I used to play the DS one, 
And the D- the DS narrative was slightly different in that you you arrived at like a pre-existing town, and then you like got acquainted. And I'm pretty sure you like built up to become the mayor. And then there was a like a a three. <laughs> A 3DS one last year, mm-hmm. uh, not last year, but that was the one before New Horizons, or as we like to call it, Communist Horizons, <laughs> um, which you you arrived and someone mis- mistook you for the mayor, and then you became Wait, why? <laughs> and then you became the mayor. <laughs> Wait, why is it always circulating around the figure of the mayor in the town? The, the, mayor, the mayor is the protagonist. What is it about the <laughs> mayor as a pre prepossessor of like civic authority and animal mm-hmm. crossing? As in, you're the protagonist. Oh, okay, sorry. So you've become the yeah. man. Oh, okay, 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 yeah. I see. Yeah, yeah. But but New Horizons is quite a departure in the... So for this latest game, you arrive at, like, a, a deserted island. Um, deserted. Yeah. Okay, well, complete, <laughs> well, completely deserted. <laughs> we'll get into the... We'll get into the, the colonial implications. Of <laughs> okay. But, but you, arri- you arrive at a, an apparently deserted island... Um, you arrive with a few other islanders who come with you, which are anthropomorphized animals, and um, I think there's two others that you come with, and you basically come with Tom Nook, who is the benevolent capitalist who is in every game. Yeah, I hear about Tom Nook <laughs> a lot on on the timeline. Yeah. What what is it about yeah. Tom Nook that who who is he really? Why why are people so obsessed with this rogue uh, Nook that I keep hearing about? <laughs> Uh, well, I don't know. He kind of tricks you into thinking he's your your mate, but really he is the the pleasant face of the debt economy in the Animal Crossing <laughs> world. <laughs> um, and he's basically set up this new like uh, package island getaway package deal where you like go with him, and he's setting up his new island and like setting up his shop and like building his commercial enterprise um but you can come with him and like set up island life okay Um, so he's like the east india company conscripting you into his his ranks to go settle a a colony (laughs) okay that's quite a good comparison um and then i'm pretty sure that what happens is you like your fellow islanders that you come with kind of um recognize your your political potential and you become the island representative so rather than being a mayor like in the other ones it's like oh because my character's called holes and called it's like holmes. Oh, holes holes oh, okay. holes not holmes no holes. sherlock holmes okay. <laughs> and the and all my islanders were like holes you have shown your your capabilities because i think i can't remember what it is that they get you to do at the beginning but i'd I'd done my like civic duties i think i chose like where their where their plots should be so that they get you to like lay out the whole the whole island which is different a difference to the previous one because you'd come to a pre-existing town but you get to control the whole layout so it's like a tabula rasa and you kind of yeah yeah, you're like the the city planner of this new new land okay yeah, interesting. Yeah, the relationship um, between land, property, and uh, meritocracy. Hmm. <laughs> exactly that <laughs> naturalized relationship. Yeah. And so they choose you to be like their trade union reps. You're not the mayor. You're like uh, their representative <laughs> then. Yeah, although I feel like that's quite a favourable interpretation. <laughs> so what is it actually like? You're... It would be cool if you were the trade union. <laughs> You're the leader of like, the Cecil colony. <laughs> yeah, you are the you make all the decisions about the the development of the settler colony. <laughs> really? And you are like the civic representative to, to like who interfaces with Tom Nook, who like controls <laughs> the, who you go to to like to talk to about infrastructure or expanding your house or so there's like two main narrative yeah. arcs that that emerge, which is that you are trying to expand your own house by paying off your mortgage and then getting like more rooms and also that you're trying to like build up the island to so there's like a star rating system out of five and you're trying to get like a five star rating <laughs> in the end which wow. Wait, what happens when you, you get a <laughs> um i think that is when kk slider comes 
Ah, okay, so this is the KK <laughs> slider that I've heard so much about. And yes. In research for this show, I was uh, typing in the like, Animal Crossing memes, and KK slider was popping up a lot as a kind of prince-like hottie that plays uh, groovy <laughs> kind of jazz music. Yes. And so the ultimate so, objective is to get KK slider to visit the island. Yeah, so that's the over the overarching narrative is that like oh wouldn't it be really cool to get KK slider to come and do a gig at our island. But he only does gigs <laughs> on five star um, islands. Yeah. Cuz I well, thought I he was so, like yeah, an anti-consumerist. I'm, I'm, I don't hippie. have a five star island. Okay. Well, <laughs> that's what it says on the Animal Crossing um wiki. But then it also says that um, although he has a hippie vibe, um, <laughs> that doesn't stop him charging 3,200 bells for his records. So Bells? <laughs> bells is the Animal Crossing currency. Oh, okay. And what, what kind of... Wow. So it's like money or is it like a kind of barter system? Yeah, it is like money. But there's also okay. a new... So another new feature of this game, along with that narrative about like KK Slider and the settler colonial vibes, is that you have an in-game <coughs> phone um, where you earn where you earn Nook miles for doing certain things. So they'll just be like from Tom. Yes. Yeah, so from Tom, and those Nook miles are like more of an ambiguous. It's almost like Bitcoin. Oh, okay. <laughs> they're, they're more of a they're more of a crypto <laughs> currency. So Nook's but, um, running like the shadow banking system and you do like kind of uh, dodgy dealings. Shady dealings. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Well, mainly it just like incentivizes you to do things like sell fruit or catch bugs or... <laughs> what? what why does Nook want to incentivize these things? Is he trying to... Because well, of... he wants to shape you into a capitalist. Okay, right. Yeah. So this really um, is a so... reimagining of Robinson Crusoe. As described by Marx in Capital Volume One, <laughs> as a kind of uh, Homo economicus, you know, sh shaped by economic accumulation. Does that seem like a fair uh, approximation of Animal Crossing? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> sounds about right. Yeah. I'm sure but, Tom Nook would agree. But lots of people have been arguing that it presents a different kind of world. Yeah. So that Atlantic article that we all had a look at mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. i thought it was very interesting because so he was basically arguing that um ultimately despite the kind of like criticisms about um animal crossing being soft capitalism that it presents this kind of alternative um world of work where we would just have to kind of like do work for a few hours a day in this kind of like weird like pastoral <laughs> landscape where we're just like living off the land and that like it, it represents the future of work because you don't have to go out and like hit trees to get wood and craft things and sell them you can just like do it if you want so it's like work becomes optional but I feel like that's quite like a mm. bold is this the uh, impossible fantasy of social democracy yeah, yeah. it sounds a lot <laughs> like you know, in the imperial core you can just like you know get your money work a few hours a day not do that much you've got your resources at hand but obviously that is sustained by a system of global imperialism right. yeah you are the labor aristocracy and it's eventually yeah. the labor aristocracy can just like do a few hours of work a day whilst you use a nook miles ticket to go to a distant island and <laughs> mine iron ores <laughs> from rocks <laughs> is that what nook miles get you you get to go to the like the yeah, the Congo yeah. So there's an airline. Uh, you know, materials for new mobiles or something. Yeah, effectively. Okay. There, there's an airline which is a, I think, is a new edition for New Horizons, where it's called. It's run by Dodos, um, so it's called the Dodo Airline, and you can accrue Nook miles, <laughs> a bit like rear, real air, air miles, I suppose, and oh, use I them see. for a plane ticket to go to an island. But you basically only really go to those islands once your own island runs out of natural resources so if you run out of wood because ah. you've knocked every tree if you've run out of like stones and iron you have to go somewhere else to go and get those resources oh what so you can actually deplete the island <laughs> yeah and, yeah and does it replenish yeah it replenishes each day 
Oh, okay. But it's just so if you deplete it in one day, then you use your Nook miles to go uh, expand your empire. Basically. Yeah, Do yeah. kind of resources, oh. grab dash. Basically. Okay, and so um, don't you also, do you ever visit other people's islands? Because I've heard a lot about the kind of sociality of Animal Crossing, how there's kind of, yeah. uh, you can be in, you can play it together in small groups, like a kind of Maoist commune. Um, <laughs> and I've seen how you can, yeah, yeah go and say hi to yeah, other yeah. players. Yeah, I think that is one of the most interesting aspects of it that is like kind of <coughs> overlooked in like the hot takes, like the Atlantic article and stuff. Because I feel like that is the the best part of it in the, well, it's kind of been accelerated in the, you know, we can't actually see each other face to face. So, for example, I've been like hanging out with my colleague and friend, shout out Ruth, who, <laughs> uh, who has a, an amazing island called Femtopia. Um, well, it's the feminist utopia. Yeah, basically. Okay. Holly, what's your island called? Uh, Lesbo land. <laughs> is it? Okay, yes. cool. Yeah, which is a lesbian utopia. So uh, you're doing like utopian uh, fiction, like Woman on the Edge of Time, but using Animal Crossing. Yeah, but obviously within the the benevolent capitalist limits of the software design. Yeah, it's overseen by Nook. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, we're at the behest of Nook. Um, but yeah, I've been hanging out with Ruth and which is like weird because we live like a few roads away, but we can only hang out in the virtual space and we send each other gifts and things we've made or like things we thought we'd like from the shop. And I've also been hanging out with my brother and his girlfriend um, who are in Sweden. Oh, really? Um, very much not mm -hmm. locked down. Um, but yeah, so we, we like hang out once a week on and go to each other's islands and stuff. But I think... Yeah, that aspect of it is very interesting because it's kind of um, part of a broader acceleration during the time of Corona, as people I keep seeing people refer, <laughs> refer to it as the age of Corona, um, like an acceleration of, of our reliance on like um, these like social tech platforms, basically. Um, yeah, I and mean, it's very reminiscent of what people were predicting in the nineties when the kind of inter internet was becoming more widespread and com computational devices, the kind of bottom was falling out mm. of that market, they were becoming more common in homes. <coughs> and you had kind of all these cyberpunk authors saying, oh, you know, we're going to see an end to the meat space. It's going to become a keyboard-based world and we're all going to be co communicating through, you know, screen uh, interfaces. And obviously now that that world kind of developed and people just started getting sick of looking at screens all the time, but obviously with the pandemic, that world has now kind of fully been realised and we're all just like constantly plugged into Zoom like it's the Matrix and um, re reinventing other forms of the, the previous forms of social life now in, in the, the non-meat space, in the virtual realm. Mm. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. it sounds endearing um, and wholesome, the Animal Crossing version of this. And also very sinister. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's that's the contradiction because like it is it is nice to be able to like hang out with people you can't see, um, and like Siang's friend Sam sent me some glasses that are like Siang's glasses <laughs> to remind me of Siang during this <laughs> difficult time, which did Aww. you know like was nice, <laughs> improved my day in the real world, <laughs> but also like <laughs> I don't know it's so because there's this documentary that me and Siang love called. A dying culture. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm, I'm aware of it. Yeah, um, but yeah, it's interesting what you're saying because that documentary as well um, is kind of arguing that this acceleration of what they call like socio-ludic media, so like this kind of playful social interaction through social media and stuff, they kind of make a prediction at the end of that that they talk about this specific program that Facebook's going on about which is like this kind of like virtual reality mm. environment social media platform and that like it's all going to accelerate where like the the boundary between reality and like virtual reality is going to disintegrate but also that that process has kind of accelerated to the point where you know the boundary between me and the nine to thirteen year old uh animal crossing adventurer i role players <laughs> 
is it, wait is, is that it, the approximate yeah, age of the character right, yeah i did not know this i actually read it on wikipedia before we recorded this episode because i was trying to read more about the canon of animal crossing and apparently i'm <laughs> the character is 9 to 13 um <gasps> which i wow. think makes the whole thing like have a have another layer because not only are you role playing the debt economy in a settler colonial society, but you're also a child. Wow. Okay, I'm calling the police. We're gonna have to check the hard drives of all of the Animal Crossing players. I'm sorry, I don't make the rules. Um, but the, the acceleration process it has become kind of a truism, talking about how certain effects have been accelerated recently by the pandemic, but. You definitely can see this with uh, video games, which have kind of long been predicted to become the dominant medium, kind of re mm -hmm. replacing yeah. film and television. When now that it's so much harder for film and television to be made, they're kind of already lagging cultural appeal has, you know, they've basically completely collapsed. Uh, likewise, we're seeing the same with newspapers. So uh, what, what would it mean for gaming to kind of become the, the dominant form or at least the most popular form? Is that what kind of uh, shifts <coughs> might, might we see in our kind of lived world if that were to be the case? Hmm. I think that kind of um, relates to the, the predictions in a dying culture. Um, because Great documentary. <laughs> everyone should watch it. Um, but because it's this idea of like, I think he calls it um, kinesthetic interfacing. So it's like. Uh, whole... What does that mean? So um, this kind of new relation between like humanity and video, because um, the documentary like talks about video as being like the dominant um, postmodern cultural form. But the key difference with video games is that there's this element of like interaction that um, like marketing departments call player expression. But it's, it's like all, all predicated on this kind of dissolving of the gap between the video and the audience. So therefore, it's mm. just like, are we just going to live in this world where we like simultaneously exist in the virtual realm role playing all the time? Basically. Mm. Ah. Well, it's good. I think it's also no, interesting sorry, to think about um, that in relation to time and like shared experience in terms of like uh, when we're talking about like TV um, and like film, the move away from like cinemas and like watching TV on the actual TV towards like streaming services or like just watching things by yourself. Um, and maybe also uh, radios to podcasts. Interesting. Um, but like, the video game also often has like a very the thing of like play at your own pace or like it's like your own personal like journey and you're you're a protagonist and you're like playing in a particular role um that's kind of very different from like forms of media like the radio or the tv which have often been about like shared experiences if that makes sense yeah but that's where the social yeah. social aspect of it is interesting but even then um like when I play with Alfie and Anna in Sweden, um, they're in a different time zone. So mm. when I visit their islands, it's in their time zone, which is quite an interesting um, <laughs> postmodern fracturing of of time because suddenly it's like ten o'clock, even though it's nine o'clock here, but we're like together in this virtual realm where there's two different times at once. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> right, but but do they is bells the global currency though of um Yeah, yeah. Okay, so it's a full globalist dream, Animal Crossing. Yeah. This, yeah. yeah, frictionless uh travel in a global currency <laughs> of bells. Yeah. Um I guess yeah. that's one of the more interesting uh developments in video games in the last few years is that more and more about the kind of like massive multiplayer experience rather than just kind of slogging away on Dark Souls by yourself in your room, like alone. <coughs> like having a more or less similar experience to many other people, but still kind of doing that solo. Like now you had like Fortnite became the most popular cultural product in the world, like full stop for a time. Um, and that's obviously yeah. a kind of 
uh, experience of a hundred people all being in a, a world together, like continuously over and over. Like it's very focused on that kind of uh, collective mania. Hmm. Um, and do you wow. think that do you think that's something that's going to keep happening, where more and more games will be about kind of lots of uh, like uh, actual human players operating uh, in, in a kind of shared uh, level experience? Yeah, I I feel like the multiplayer um, element of Animal Crossing is is quite a departure from like the forms of multiplayer games that have dominated um, like well historically, but not that historically. Like in the last ten years or whatever, like playing Call of Duty, for example, on like multiplayer mode, where what happens there is like the whole killing killing people is like turned into like a tournament like an abstracted tournament for like killing sake or whatever like it's a very different thing because i feel like to some extent the forms of like uh sociality that animal crossing encourages are closer to like playing p club penguin or ah <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, club penguin um, that brings back yeah. memories is it yeah. more like like a mass multiplayer online game yeah yeah. Yeah. Then um I love those. <laughs> whereas like what um like fourteen year old boys used to do on Halo and COD is like a different a different form of, of multiplayer. Um but I feel like the kind that is in Animal Crossing will become increasingly more dominant, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Joe, tell us about your experience of trying to relate to people through Fortnite. <laughs> Um, well, so I, I used to work at a big secondary school in London and everyone there was obsessed with Fortnite. This was a couple of years ago. Like it was like it was the kind of cultural cool in the school. It was all anyone talked about. And people would come to school not having slept because they played it all night. So I was like, OK, I've got to check this out. So I saved up and I eventually was able to get a PS4. And um, it was one of the most enthralling and horrifying experiences of my life, uh, playing Fortnite every night. Because uh, honestly, it was a continual adrenaline rush. Like, I'd never liked mm. um, playing games where there's other human players. Like, I'd played games to escape uh, humans and enjoyed kind of <laughs> uh, getting immersed in a fantasy world. But it was just such a rush. Um, to play that I got really into it and I, when I finally won my first victory that's when I stopped but for a while I was completely hooked and to this day I can still do the floss the hype a few of the other dances that your uh, characters <laughs> can did do you ever, did you ever buy any uh, what are they called skins or yes I did, did you, I did think actual money into the game in order that I could have a skeleton suit and angel wings because wow. every player that has a skeleton suit and angel wings is basically a kind of uh, fascist in the game. It's like a, <laughs> the uniform you wear if you're insanely good. So I thought if I, if I got that costume that I could be it, you know, rather than just dreaming it. Mm. Unfortunately, I was still just insanely easy to kill even after I finally got that costume. But the costumes are only released at certain times. That makes it feel like when it's on the market, you have to buy it. It's very, it's very well programmed to get people to spend money. Yeah. That's like an interesting thing I think about a lot of this, like the open world, like you're just in a world with like different people and like kind of competing against them as well. Um, <clears throat> it's, like, it's also a great way to make you spend money um, because you know you want other people to see you a certain way, so you like buy things to like, well, if you're like a teenage boy, but maybe also you um, <laughs> buy things to like look cool or like be in the crowd in the game. Um, and also what you were saying about like the being like time limited, um, like making you feel like you have to find more. So there's like a lot of stuff about like interpreting the world inside the game and the narrative of the game, but then also about like the, I guess the economic compulsions that have like been transforming the ways that games are played and programmed you to play slash spend money. Definitely. I mean, you can totally see that kind of the gamification of unpaid work, like how many forms we all have to fill in and how much time is spent kind of interviewing for jobs and all of the applications like video games often kind of have those kinds of components to them. And, you know, very mm. similar to kind of working in the gig economy. Uh, I, I used to be a delivery yeah. courier and you kind of had an app 
uh, with a kind of algorithm that guided you around as if you were on like secret missions to deliver food. You know, it's like wait at this spot, and you get to the spot, and you have to hang around, and then you go to the next location. You know, it's very um, hard to differentiate it from some of these game worlds except that you know it's actually off the keyboard and in the in the meat space um but so that i guess that brings that that's the kind of space in games the intersection between the actual content of them and the form and i think and a lot of like left-wing game criticism mm. is often just like oh you know new super mario bros is about the naturalization of the italian immigrant in america like there's often just like a kind of hermeneutics of interpretation <laughs> which ignore the actual form of games about how they actually get made where they get made by who you know what are they paid what are their conditions what resources are involved what supply chains what companies and so what what is what how would you surmise that whole uh, totality of the gaming industry that's often ignored um, I think that's interesting in in light of the um, the Atlantic article about Animal Crossing, where he was trying to trying to say that it was basically like this vision of what work could be like, because yeah. that is a kind of left wing take on on well, sort of leftish take on video video games that is entirely concerned with the content and not the form. Because if he gave even like a cursory thought to like the relations of production behind video games then you would like realize it's absurd to claim that when like the video game industry is is kind of notorious for like kind of terrible work conditions and like crunch um and like short-term contracts and stuff like that um but the the book marks at the arcade by jamie woodcock is very good on the like um the specifics of the resources involved in like the global supply chains and stuff um mm. and <coughs> yeah so there's there's obviously like the software development and game designers are often like um put on sh these short-term contracts and forced to crunch and like work unpaid overtime but obviously you have to think about like the broader supply chains um particularly like the way that mm. hardware is involved in yeah. the game in, and like hardware cycles and kind of like planned obsolescence um and like yeah. getting the materials to produce the yeah <laughs> to produce the <laughs> hardware um and there's also like a big culture of um non-disclosure agreements which he talks a lot mm. um about a lot in the book um what games which... workers have to sign ndos yeah so like basically so they don't reveal um, mario's real name <laughs> but they're often um, it's Joe <laughs> they're often forced to, to sign them in interviews so they'll go to interviews there were a few anecdotes in the book about how they'll go to interviews and they'll be interviewing to work on a project but they wouldn't be told what the project is because they'll be forced to sign a non-disclosure agreement so that's like historically been a barrier to organising within the games industry and like unionisation because people just like literally can't talk about um, what they're doing uh, and there's a good quote actually from the book that I think sums up um, the kind of role of um, the relations of production in video games which is the potential of software development is realised under the constraints of capitalist relations of production this means the kind of software we get is shaped by the way that it is made and un under what conditions um, right yeah yeah. I mean, yeah, I think this is, go on. Mm. It's also interesting in terms of like, you know, uh, gamers are notorious, <laughs> obviously, um, for like being terrible. You know, like game game stuff. Um, but a lot of these like, I don't know, alt right gamers or like, um, will like analyze games in terms of like, oh, like games are getting worse. And also, like, sometimes there's more women in them. So, like, games are getting worse because there's like more women in them when like obviously the reason why you might feel like your game is getting worse is because like it does not suit the game developers to like pay lots of people more money to actually do like work in good conditions or like to give you like a complete game that you don't have to buy like more things to have a full enjoyment of um so that's like a, i think a very uh, obvious example of where like the shortcomings of like not thinking about the production side of games leads you to extremely erroneous conclusions <laughs> yeah. mm. 
And um, Xiang, you were also looking at recently, we were talking about this, weren't we? About um, how, I mean, we were all thinking about how kind of uh, the production of games might be handled mm -hmm. differently. Like if, if we were a communist society, how might it look different about what kinds of things are played and, and where? And we were looking at um, kind of regulation in China and you said there were some specific measures oh, yeah. they took towards things such as microtransactions and... Yeah, so I was just looking at some, I don't know, China, because I love to think about China. Um, and I think microtransactions are something that is like very... Uh, well, everyone's talking about it. Well, some people are talking about it because it's a very obvious way in which uh, people who play games are exploited um in a sort in a sort of like gambling mechanism um so a lot of people like get addicted not only to playing games but also addicted to like buying uh buying things like loot boxes and stuff um for a chance at winning some like limited edition item um in like the uk and like a lot of other western countries um the regulation around this is like extremely lax um basically it's like doesn't really count as like a form of gaming so there's not uh, gaming as a form of gambling so there's not any like um uh you know any of like that kind of regulation um whereas i was looking at the law in china so like i think late last year they introduced um rules around gaming especially like around minors or children gaming um so a lot of these um game developers now have to release the like statistics for what the odds are of getting specific items um, in loot boxes for Chinese versions of the games that they release um, but they don't have to but obviously this is a Chinese law so they don't have to um, release those figures um, for like elsewhere in the world um, so some people suspect that the game developers will actually increase the like chance of getting loot in China uh, so that like the figures look better damn um, compared with the rest regulation of the pays yeah. off <laughs> <laughs> yeah a win for the gamers of China <laughs> Um, Big Uncle Z knocked like, it out the park for the gamers of China. <laughs> if you're in the UK and you look at the stats for China, you're probably not going to get that. Um, and then other stuff like um, for minors, I think. You, so there was a regulation about how you to sign into like these games, you have to like use um, a real account, like, a, like attached to your like real identity, um, because there was some kind of regulation for how much money you would be allowed to spend on microtransactions or in-game transactions per month. Um, I think depending on age, it was like 22 to like $57 or something, um, according to this NPR article that I read, um, which I guess, you know, on the one hand, you might be like, oh, authoritarian China does it again. Um, <laughs> but on the other hand, um, I do think it's really important, especially because like, um, I don't know if you know about this, but like my mum, for example, was always like, you can never get a games console. She eventually was like, you can get a Wii because it's like exercise. Anyway, but we only got like, I don't know, Mario and Sonic at the Olympic Games. Um, but it's like, you can never get a games console because in she'd heard so many horror stories about like children in China and like young people in China, especially university students, like getting addicted to gaming, like getting to university, getting addicted to gaming, like dropping out or like sometimes even people die because they're addicted to gaming um so that's actually been like quite a major social problem in china for a long time and also part of it was to address um myopia in china so like the vast majority of chinese children and like young people have like strong like short-sightedness um so that was also part of the reason really? why is that all true um, wait does sitting close to the television actually damage your eyes because i thought that was a common misconception my grandma always used to tell me to stop sitting so close to the simpsons because i would i would lose my sight well, I don't know if it is true, but my <laughs> family have been telling me that it's true okay, so... <laughs> since I was born. So it's anecdotal <laughs> evidence. Okay, but still, who knows? But that, I don't know, it mentioned that in the article, but um, yeah. Well, so, in, in terms of uh, gaming and thinking about uh, Marxism, obviously Marx never really considered gaming, much, much to fool him, but he did consider <laughs> leisure time. <laughs> And, you know, questions about, you know, what do we do when we relax? And actually, apparently he did um, play chess, right? And there was a kind of a recorded chess game from just after he finished Capital um, with kind of writing about how he played and what he thought about what he was doing. 
But I have a very serious question stemming from this point, which is, if Marx was alive, would he be a gamer? And if so, what kind of gamer would he be? Well... I've blown uh, your minds, I can tell. <laughs> can I say, I think that... Candy Crush. <laughs> <laughs> I think Mar- Marx would be a gamer, and he would be the kind of gamer who lives in Engel's basement. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> what, playing, like, RPGs, just living in Engel's basement. Yeah. Yeah. He, he would never have met his wife and the love of his life and had his lovely children. He would have just like... Maybe she would also be a gamer. Yeah, maybe actually. <laughs> That's what they would, you know, join over. Well... Maybe he would never have written Capital. Yeah, possibly. I think he'd probably do something even more momentous and be like one of the world's great Fortnite players. Maybe establish <laughs> a truly great Fortnite team. And, you know... Yeah. That's where the people are. That's how you reach the people. You can talk in the headsets and kind of propagandise that way. So, you know, um, but uh, yeah. more seriously, we were talking about the industry and how hard it is to organise. Obviously, there's the great group Game Workers Unite. I mean, they're a trade union with links to the IWGB, right? Yeah. What, what kinds of work so, have, have they been doing? So they're a fairly new um, like union in a legal sense, I think. Um, but I was reading... Um, I think it's a bit in Marks at the Arcade about like the context in which they formed because they initially just kind of I think formed mainly online on Twitter um, so there was like a panel at some kind of games conference and um, the panel was going to be about like whether there should be unionisation in the games industry and wow. I think it was mainly just like filled <laughs> with people who for them the answer was like no um, oh gosh <laughs> Because there's a lot of yeah. like anti-union sentiment in the games industry, so they basically like Can't arranged, yeah, <laughs> um, they arranged to um, like either fill the panel or the audience or whatever with like people who were pro-union and kind of like um, disrupt the event, which was going to be dominated by anti-union sort of industry people. And people they'd bribed with loot boxes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think it sort of spiraled from there, and then now they've got links with um, the IWGB. But um, yeah, they seem to be like doing good, good work. Um, they're trying to like their main things. They're trying to push back against is like obviously crunch is a big thing that's talked about. Um, which and is that's like, like where you have to hit certain targets and you kind of push push yourself, right? Yeah, it's, it's kind of like planned into the contract that they will, during like the last few weeks before the game's launch, they will like work um, obscene overtime and like not get paid for it basically, like do like 80 hour weeks or whatever. But it's not, it's not even necessarily that like they need to do that crunch, like the crunch is planned into it, it's not like a, a kind of like, oh my god, we need to get the game done, like they plan that kind of like intense extraction of work from there like they plan to work in that like horrible horrible way basically um so and then just kind of squeezing the labor of, power out yeah yeah in this like really intense period i mean there was um an excerpt from an article in the marks at the arcade book from like um a partner of like a games worker like talking about um what it was like living with him whilst he was doing the crunch it was just like horrible it's just like his soul had been sucked out of him because he had been like doing 80 hour weeks and just like had constant headaches and like constant stomach ache because he'd just been like crunching trying to develop this game um but they also do stuff in in trying to like improve the treatment um of like bme people and women in the games industry because it's like a historically white to mouth mm. industry um and yeah, obviously, as demonstrated by the whole Gamergate thing. Um, yeah. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, the, the crunch and that kind of new nomenclature mirrors the kind of game addiction uh, issues that we were highlighting earlier. Because I know there's this mm. kind of word, like, to, to us, like, sweat, to become a sweat, is when you kind of get hooked. Mm and spend three days like peeing into bottles and like not not doing anything but gaming because you can't tear yourself away <laughs> and this is like a common phenomenon and something that's kind of like both mocked and revered at the same time um yeah. amongst like particularly you, younger people have you like heard the term whale 
No, what like the the mammal? <laughs> what is that? Yeah, but it's it's quite dark. So I was watching uh -oh. um, this Jimquisition video. He's he does he does a lot of gaming videos, but he did a video about um, microtransactions, and he showed a clip of this like I don't remember who it was, but it was like some big dog and this game developer, um, and he was doing a presentation about like how to expand your business and like make money, and he basically said there's like two types of players. There's like some most the vast majority of players and then there are the whales who are like i don't know like less than one percent of the the target audience but you make like the vast majority of money from them because they're the people who probably have like pre-existing issues with addiction and become addicted to like spending money in game so that's like also built into like the model of how these companies make money is that they specifically are trying to target people who are vulnerable to addiction because their whole business model is built on like mining like less than one percent of the players for like i don't know like 80 percent of their revenue that's shocking but i guess but maybe yeah. perhaps not that surprising it's so reminiscent of those kind of really sinister dimensions of algorithmic capitalism that you sometimes hear about mm. i mean is it whale like moby dick like to land the white yeah. whale oh wow because that's like yeah. a foundational yeah. novel of kind of American exceptionalism yeah. kind of capitalism yeah. and you know a desire yeah. that never guess, stops and yeah it's also like interesting to think about because a lot of these games are like games that kind of are like relatively cheap or like free to play games so like even like games like I know Candy Crush or like whatever things that are free to play on your phone um and like maybe like don't have any adverts but then you have to wonder like how do these companies actually make money if I'm just downloading this game and playing it for free and it's obviously because someone somewhere else is like getting exploited Oh yeah, somebody's paying, yeah. definitely. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think this has been a kind of delightful tour through the world of Animal Crossing and its communist possibilities, and likewise through the gaming industry. Yeah. Uh, I think we should close off with one of my favourite um, themes from the Zelda game, <laughs> which sums up everything we've been talking about, I think, in a kind of perfect 16-bit uh, little track. Um, yeah, but thank, thank you for joining us, Holly Furman. Thanks, Holly. Yeah, thank Animal you. Crossing anthropologist and communist organiser yeah. at the frontiers of the virtual world. <laughs> the horizons. Yeah. Yeah. All right, take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye.